Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and this is show number 31. And I have an amazing scientist with us today, Pia Weinberg, who I came across at the BBC Futures event. Uh, it was a conference, a one-day conference last year where, you know, scientists present on where they believe the future of various things is headed, whether it be space travel, whether it be food. And it was a really, really uh, mind-blowing day. You can imagine when the BBC assembles their best. That's a pretty hectic cast of, of brains. And uh, and I saw Pia speak and I was really enthralled with the innovative work she was doing around um, aquaculture and specifically seaweed and how you could actually sequester carbon with seaweed and create a more sustainable practice of farming sea vegetables, maintaining ocean health as well as contributing to overall planetary health with the work that she does and some really clever food stuff with her incredible food company which I've popped in the show notes uh, with links to gorgeous uh, pastas and macadamia nuts and uh, things that are basically laced with sea vegetables. So you're not having a huge over-concentration to push you into, you know, having too much iodine because that would also, you know, not be so great for our health. But just to get those essential trace minerals in small amounts into the foods that we're already eating and enjoying in a natural form, not in synthetically boosted things, which so many of our foods are, you know, something from the sea and the macadamias are absolutely delicious. I've since tried them. So uh, all the details about that are in the show notes. I just want to, before we leap into the chat, remind you that all this month, the wonderful people of Etitude are supporting not only our show, but also giving us a great deal. So with the code sleep better, we have 10% off. Now that's not over their main website link. You have to go to our special website link and uh, that link is in the show notes as well and it'll take you straight through. You've even got what my favourite things from the shop are, the Bondi sheet set, which is a really beautiful rich grey. There's a pale mint. And the beautiful thing about what they're doing is they're really looking to shave everywhere possible. (laughs) God, that sounds like we're shaving hair. We're not. We're shaving water usage. We're shaving resources in production. We're using non-toxic dyes, uh, non-toxic products in our production line. We're paying our farmers just wages. Bamboo is such a sustainable crop. It grows so hard, so fast compared to cotton. And it stands to reason that while there are some incredible organic cotton textile got certified you know, my shopping bags on the site are organic, got certified uh, shopping bags. In, in terms of overall choices, I'm a big fan of making use of the textiles, uh, things that are using less resources to grow. So kind of like teff in the grain world grows like a gazillion times faster than wheat and is uh, resilient to all sorts of pests, so you don't need to use pesticides. There are those sorts of things that exist in all sorts of areas of daily things that we buy. And while there are some folks, unfortunately, still using a lot of chemicals in bamboo linen production, uh, the guys at Attitude are very, very uh, finicky about what they do and don't use and have our safety and the planet's health at the absolute centre of their business's ethics code. So I hope you're enjoying the sheets. I know so many people are already and it's just so lovely that, you know, the reality is as a show we need sponsors. It takes hours to put together these shows and the resources of not just myself but my wonderful assistant Ingrid and uh, and to have the support so that we cover our costs is really just wonderful. So I love that you guys make use of it. Of course, you always have my utmost word that I will only ever bring you the most ethical, always organic uh, options in terms of show partnership and support. Right. So that's that talked about, ticking all the things off my list. It's time to introduce you to Pia. Uh, It's a great chat. Uh, I I urge you to continue to listen, even if um, you don't think that aquaculture or growing seaweed or farming seaweed is going to be something interesting to you. We really talk about some very interesting things during this chat. I learned so much and I know you will too. Enjoy. Hello, Pia. How are you? I'm well, Alex. That's good. 
And now I'm so excited to have you on the show because this is something that uh, is a huge global concern and issue at the moment, talking about how we can feed people, how we can get nutrients to the ever-growing global population. And the work that you do is super interesting in that regard. And, yeah, uh, and yeah it's just going to be great. So I would love to just start with um, with just... So people can get an idea of what motivates you to do the work that you do. What what do you think you love most sharing about the work that you do with people? You meet someone and they say, what are you up to? What do you do? What's your first thing that you just love to share? Well, I usually explain to people that I didn't wake up as a, you know, 12-year-old being inspired to become a seaweed farmer and make food <laughs> from it. That wasn't something that was on my radar. Yeah. And my, my driving passion was um, actually marine conservation and sustainability. And okay. Indeed, that's what I've done my PhD in is in marine systems, ecology and and sustainability of the oceans. And initially looking at how to make aquaculture sustainable because, you know, it, it actually is not the... the uh, <clears throat> You know the fiend of the of the seas, as many people think. It's about how you do it. It's just like on land with permaculture and things like that. We grow vegetables, and people understand that if you recycle the nutrients and look after the earth and the soil and the and the watering systems, then it is actually an ecological system. And aquaculture can be the same thing. But key to that is seaweeds. And that's really how my passion came about, was in doing research in Sri Lanka on tiger prawn farms and realising that seaweeds were the key to capturing the nutrient waste that was really just a pipeline of sewage going out to the sea from aquaculture. And, I mean, humans did that in society centuries ago. We let all our sewage out on the streets and we all got sick. So it's not surprising that the same thing would happen in aquaculture. But if you put seaweeds into the recipe, then you can turn all of that around. But it's very hard for someone to explain to to uh, aquaculture industries and government that we should all start growing seaweeds to clean up the environment. So then I started looking at, well, we should just start growing seaweeds for the nutrients and health benefits because there are many, many of those. And so then I spent a lot of my research years working with nutritionists and doing the research behind that. And I found that, well, we can actually kill two birds with one stone if we grow seaweed. We can remediate nutrients and keep the waterways clean and capture carbon dioxide more quickly than in other plants. And the nutritional value is really, really high and is something that's can serve as a missing link in some of the nutritional deficiencies that we've got at the moment. Mm. So that's the sort of background and motivation for me now is that um, seaweeds really can solve a lot of problems while delivering new you know, occupational solutions and, and health solutions. Beautiful. And there is just so much that you've just said there. I want to ask you a question about probably about six things in there. Yeah. So you mentioned as a child that it was more marine conservation. How did you grow up that that became a passion of yours? Well, growing up in Sydney and living by the sea and spending weekends down at, you know, Camp Cove and Watson's Bay and just going snorkelling and just, it's amazing to go snorkeling just off the shores in Sydney and see the life that's there. And that just really and kept always stayed with me, inspired me. You know, it was this fantasy world that you could go into as a child. And uh, and so marine science just always fascinated me and I stayed with science through school. And then when I got to university, I really wanted to focus on, on marine science. So I really just followed my passion. And then you can see, well, what, what are the things that, need to be done and what can we what can we do to improve the marine environment and be true to your interests and passions and then you'll really follow those and and do them well uh, and that was the um yeah inspiration for me simply putting on a snorkel and mask on the shores of sydney and looking at what was under the surface amazing and i've got to say i went to um we're half mauritian on my mum's side and we went to mauritius this year uh, and my son was sort of old enough to chuck on a snorkel and go swimming alongside me for an hour without getting tired or needing floaties and all that so it was just a beautiful thing for us to do every day and it's it's such a go- it's just a, a gift for a child to be able to see life just doing mm. its thing like that you know we're we're so in life as humans that we don't watch life much unless we've got parents or a curriculum or a particular teacher that wakes us up to the wonders of life and and I just thought it was such a joyful thing to wake him up to all those fishies under the sea and and all the crazy creatures and 
Yeah, beautiful. You do, yeah. and you become very alert with your senses, the feel on your skin, the sounds, that everything's different. So you become very alert and you absorb and, and look at details, don't you? You really, really do. And, like, when you study marine biology, is there in the current, like, in a bachelor's degree, say, is there a huge focus on sustainability and the damage that's being done to our oceans? There is to a degree. There's a, there's a lot of... Um, <clears throat> Ecology, I mean, looking at threatened species like they do on land and things like that is something that they do. But there is a, I studied my uh, undergraduate and my honours research through Stockholm University in Sweden because I do have a background from from Sweden. And uh, in Sweden, they actually do have a very heavy emphasis on ecological sustainability of the oceans at a larger scale. Mm. And they have uh, foreign aid research projects throughout developing nations who are actually really trying hard to develop the ocean areas in for their own socioeconomic progress, which is a great thing if it's done properly and a very destructive thing if it's not. So there is a lot of research and applied research effort sending scientists to places like I went to Sri Lanka or Africa and Southeast Asia where they're starting industries and, and trying to solve and help them with the issues that are there. And, you know, one of the big things that aquaculture got slammed for and rightly so in the last 50 years as it grew, was the rapid destruction of the coastline, the pollution that was going out, the cutting down of mangroves in coastal zones to build, you know, massive prawn farms all the way up the coast. And there's nothing wrong with doing some of those, but you can't rape and pillage your coastline and and do that. Um, and uh, and so that's that's what we were sent over there to look at, was in, in actually tiger prawn farms, and they actually – kicked and shot themselves in the foot because they built so many farms, they throw all the waste into the lagoon outside the farm and then they're trying to pump in new seawater, which is actually the lagoon. Oh, <laughs> gosh. All their waste into. So what's the solution to that? I mean, you know, because prawn farming is a huge issue in terms of also in some parts of Asia where there's antibiotic use that isn't even allowed in some countries. So we're, we're ending up with antibiotics in our oceans and... As a as, as someone who's very close to this, what do you think the solution is there? Well, the solution is learning ecology yeah. and learning ecosystem. It's not that hard. It's simple. It's similar to animals. You know, if you you have systems even in land animal production now, you know, your chickens. You need to have a good animal welfare, and animal welfare is not throwing the sewage pipeline back into the pond. Mm. Um, actually and then treat it so what we need to do is look at the sewage it's an it's a nutritional resource that can feed the plant side of things so the the tiger prawn farm i was working at was very progressive and very sustainable so they pumped in saline groundwater from the edge of the lagoon which was not then contaminated by by the lagoon wastewater they then kept that water and recirculated it so they grew the, the tiger prawns for their high-value markets. And then the water went into a settlement pond, which had a tilapia fish, which eat some of the waste particles, the larger particles, and those fish feed the local people. It's one of their staple fish food sources and has a high omega-3 and nutritional content for the local people. They also grow milk fish, which again is a local fish for eating, and they eat smaller particles in the wastewater. Then they have another pool with mussels who filter out the smallest particles. And then what you're left with are the dissolved nutrients. And so those nutrients can be absorbed by the seaweeds. Mm. So you've got four systems there cleaning up the water naturally and growing new products for the local people to eat. Then the water is oxygenated by the seaweeds. The pH is bumped up again through the consumption of carbon dioxide in the water and the water can then be returned to the tiger prawns and recirculated that way without any release of nutrient to the local lagoon. So you can see that tiger prawn farming can be very sustainable and provide a lot for humanity and not have as long as we design it according to ecological principles. So just as with permaculture, it's all in the design as as to as to whether it's a, a good idea or a bad idea uh, exactly. in the long term. Yeah, amazing. You know, and I think a lot of people. It's it, again, it proves that nothing's black and white, right? Because mm. you know, so many people just completely dis prawns. Like, don't eat prawns. They're bad. You don't know where they come from. But mm. I am such a big believer. Just as with meat, if you're an omnivore. We almost have a responsibility to be seeking out the people who are doing it right and sharing information when we do find 
who's doing it right so that the good guys grow and yes. and the people who are doing it wrong, well, people aren't going to keep up the business practice that isn't making them any money because everyone stopped buying. So right. they're going to start doing it like the, the, the guys who have got the design right. And, uh, right. and I think with prawns, uh, what I'll do actually for people is just – get a few resources for you guys for further reading and, and pop them in the show notes along with uh, some questions you can ask your fishmonger about where your prawns are from and just to help us get the word out there on that because I think we weren't even going to talk about prawns. But it's such well, we a, weren't, but uh, look at that, you know, where the whole ecosystem's linked, isn't Exactly. It? So. <laughs> it's just such a good example of how we can do it right. Just as with farming rather than huge feedlot beef, rotating different animals through pasture and and making the most of what each of those animals naturally loves to do to regenerate soil as opposed to deplete it. I mean, it's I get excited when we see, when you have a bit of an education aha moment and, and people can see it's, there's no do and don't, there's how do we do it right? And, exactly. and therein lies the, the actual progress we can make um, as consumers when we learn who's doing it right and we start supporting them. That's right. Yeah. And we should ask those questions. Why? Why is it, you know, and rightly so, as you know, conservation agencies dist aquaculture totally. So aquaculture has a bad reputation. But if we learn to understand that we can do it right, then, then those agencies, even World Wildlife Fund, are turning around and understanding that we can do it right. And that's where there's aquaculture standards now that are coming into play. And the more that people ask their fishmonger and fish shops about, where things come from, slowly that pressure will will relay back to the farms and the regulators, and yeah, we will have we will have very sustainable seafood production. Mm, amazing. And do you have any advice for people while we're on the topic of seafood, in the sort of meat sense rather than the veggie sense? Just a few tips from um, someone who is clearly very close to it all on the most sustainable seafood we can buy. Uh, well, we can still buy some wild fisheries. Wild fisheries have reached sort of a peak a peak level that we're not going to expand the wild fisheries. And there are some fish that species that we probably shouldn't eat in terms of, you know, the sustainability of them. But the most sustainable one from wild fisheries would be things like pilchards mm-hmm. and the anchovies and also highly, highly nutritious, the sardines and those types of fish Yummy. because they're full of the omega-3s that we are chronically deficient in in the West. Uh, they're at the bottom of the food chain. And even though they have peaks and troughs in population linked to mostly, you know, El Nino events and when the nutrient upwellings occur or not, they are um, they are the populations that will recover and, and be maintained very well. Other ones are the octopus calamari type foods. They're very sustainable, fast reproducing species. And then in aquaculture, it, you do have to look for the aqua. There's a new there's new labelling like the Marine Stewardship Council and other seafood marketing. There's um, Aquaculture Stewardship Council brands now that can show what is sustainable at the bottom of the food chain in terms of aquaculture fish. And throughout Southeast Asia, you know the tilapia and the milkfish are very low on the food chain and and more sustainable than say the ones that are high up on the food chain like your salmon and things but that doesn't mean that salmon is actually quite a good sustainable standard for a meat source if you like or protein source because the salmon are actually cold-blooded and is distinct from animals on land that are eating and half in part to keep themselves warm salmon don't do that so you're even on a on a predator like the salmon your feed conversion ratios are quite low Mm. because they're a cold-blooded animal and they do have very very good omega-3 content so in that way as long as the salmon industry as well starts to pick up its act yes after the nutrient waste and recycling things and in Canada, they're starting to do that. They're growing actually seaweeds and mussels around some of the salmon cages. Oh, absolutely. So uh, yes. Yeah. There's a permaculture garden going on there. And in those cases, you know, uh, even even the salmon are something that are, are very nutritious, uh, full of omega-3s and do have good food conversion efficiencies. They're eat, but they are eating sardines, and which we could eat instead. Directly. Yeah, it's so true, right? But they are looking to... Um, to also to look at replacing a lot of the animal meal in 
fish feed with with vegetable proteins as well, which is again where seaweed can come in because it's forty percent protein when <laughs> we're growing. So exactly, instead of GMO soy, which if you do your investigating, often ends up being a huge part of salmon pellet feed so you know again it's it's about asking those questions and if you get a shoddy answer if you don't feel like you can trust it then do what I do maybe which is um, just have salmon once every couple of months as a treat from the beautiful supplier like the Canadian Way who do have an incredible aquaculture design uh, sustainability program in place and you know I think food miles is something we worry about but actually it's the way something's produced that produces far more of its carbon effect on the atmosphere than the travel to another country to eat it. It's incredible. But I was learning about this recently on the David Suzuki website, and I'll pop that link there too. There's some incredible research around, you know, buying an organic thing uh, uh, from overseas versus a a not-so-well-farmed thing from a local source. Incredible. I would have always thought, oh, no, local's definitely best. But, um, yeah, there's some very interesting research out there these days. Anyway, I digress. Mm. Um, you're saying yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, 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 it's all linked, like I said. It so, is, so yeah. It's very relevant. It's all relevant. Yeah, supporting the good guys is something that none of us can argue is a bad thing, is a good thing, is a bad thing to do. So now can you share maybe just on that note of – of carbon, what has struck you the most in everything that you've studied around climate change and the ocean's current state of health? I mean, as someone who reads a little bit here and there, it's almost like a too hard basket of, oh, God, that just all looks so scary if I, if I go down that hole. What, what, did it, what concerns you the most as a scientist? Well, I think that, um, you know, we'll, the oceans are already feeling and showing um, effects of climate change, of course. And I mean, the big one that we hear on the radio is is uh, the Great Barrier Reef, because that is what is a big tourist icon. And is, we're very close, you know, we're very close to the Great Barrier Reef. And that's a wonderful thing. But uh, I also think that, you know, people really miss other changes that are not so, well, the Barrier Reef isn't furry and cuddly, but I put it in the category of furry and cuddly things that, you know, make conservation easier to get the message across to people. But there are already some big shifts that are happening on our own coastlines. And uh, some of those, the ocean will, you know, will adapt. We're already getting, say, Sydney rock oysters, which used to just be on mainland and New South Wales, really. They've actually now turned up in Tasmania. Mm. Sea urchins are turning up in Tasmania that used to only be in New South Wales, and they're eating bare the seaweed areas down there and things like that. So we're getting a shift of animals down the Nemo current, if you liked, and and they're changing things. The ocean does have the capacity to adapt and, you know, things, things do shift over time. It's just that those shifts are happening very quickly. And so we will have some impacts short term that affect, you know, fisheries production and new species coming in on, on that local context. But I think that's a change that's sort of now in place and, and inevitable and we, we, we will adapt to it. There's, there's the other um, impacts from uh, climate change, uh, the ocean acidification that they talk about as well, where certain animals will struggle, say, to create calcium carbonate shells and things because the ocean acidity is increasing. But then there are others that can actually cope quite well with that and uh, will also take over. So we will, she- we will be seeing shifts in species due to um, temperature changes or um, acidification changes, both of which are linked to climate change. Um, what's what's uh, interesting, again, back to seaweeds, is that um, of, of anything, seaweeds and, and algae in the oceans, have, they were very responsible for taking the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in the beginning for us, when the Earth was a more carbon dioxide rich atmosphere and oxygen was produced and then filled up the atmosphere, it was the algae and the seaweeds that were very largely responsible for that. Um, oh, wow. And, and uh, we can actually take up carbon dioxide in our seaweed production much faster than many land crops because the carbon dioxide is encapsulated in the seawater. It's not, you know, floating in the air and the seaweed tumbling through it. You can actually take it up very quickly. So for every tonne of seaweed, wet seaweed we'd grow uh, or dry seaweed we would grow, dry weight equivalent, we would be capturing a tonne of carbon dioxide. 
and uh, they're using they're using seaweed in China already in aquaculture um, areas, for example, in bays, and showing that if they grow fish, the fish drop nutrients and they grow shellfish around those fish, then that aquaculture also produces a lot of carbon dioxide because they're breathing out. They're animals that are eating and respiring and they're breathing out carbon dioxide. But if they then grow seaweed around those as well, not only is the seaweed taking up the nutrients, it's taking up the carbon dioxide from the animals, but also additional carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And it's actually offsetting the acidification and buffering it, making Mm. it much more alkaline. So in bays, you can actually offset ocean acidification just by growing seaweed. Amazing. And is this something governments are paying attention to and, and funding? There's research happening and um, to show how uh, this, this is the case in those sorts of systems, but there's nothing at the moment that's looking at you know, implementing seaweeds in a big way. The CSIRO has done some work looking at offsetting ocean acidification in the southern end of the Barrier Reef and done some modelling. And, you know, to offset the impact on on the Barrier Reef, which is huge, of course, you're going to have to have very huge (laughs) seaweed farms if you're just going to look at that simple mammoth calculation. But I think that we should always focus, you know, think globally in terms of these global big problems. But the solutions are not often the big gigantic one solution fits all it's actually bring that that global thinking to your local context and create industries that slowly can grow and multiply and that are industries that capture carbon and i i don't think you know like you wouldn't want mass one massive coal industry and we're moving more to localized energy production that in a similar way you'd move to more nodes of localized seaweed or sustainability operations that can um, offset climate change and slowly those things will start to grow and collectively in the future will have a big impact and importance in terms of shifting the the balance and the the carbon economy. Mm. So I I think that we do need to think big and globally but start intervening at the local scale instead of waiting to intervene for the one big solution that's going to solve it all because rarely that's usually a very risky way to go and we do have the small scale solutions here now so it would be great if government could support those smaller scale solutions because they're usually looking for the big monolithic solutions that will fix everything. Mm Mm-hmm. And and that's never the case. It's never going to be the case. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's kind of like uh, I, I'm a big believer in grassroots in terms of the power of the consumer and what we fill our shopping baskets with as a way to preserve the health of people and planet. And, you know, if if we waited for the government to finally do something or for any head of state anywhere or for an association who recommends certain dietary uh, modalities to change that, then we would be waiting a very long time because all those people are just so stuck in a system that almost perpetuates same-same that yes. it's, it is actually up to us, small business, small industry to to be the innovative nimble people that we are we can literally as a consumer from the very basic n equals one you can say i'm not going to buy that anymore i'm going to buy this yes and you know as a business owner you can say i'm not going to make stupid plastic promotional tools anymore i'm going to make this to share with my customers as yeah. a as an aquaculture scientist, you can say, yeah. I'm not going to rape and pillage the, the oceans. I'm going to do this. And exactly. everyone can do something at any level that we're at. Mm-hmm. There's a, a huge sense of disempowerment in our world at the moment. And I just like to remind everybody that yeah. we have huge amounts of power, no matter what we're doing, especially yeah. power over our own bodies and what we put in our mouths. Absolutely. The customer has is the key. And I think that people people forget that and think that it's you know, big corporations and government controlling everything, but actually it isn't. If no. the people on the ground make decisions, then, then the leadership will follow. <laughs> Absolutely. No one likes to be unpopular. No. <laughs> mm. So um, oh, I'm so proud of myself for not mentioning Trump then. That was really, I was very restrained. <laughs> okay, moving on. Still not going to mention him. <laughs> Obviously, as a scientist, you started to see uh, the magic of, of seaweed, its potential in sequestering carbon, but also as a food, as you mentioned before, to help people deal with deficiencies. 
What was your next step? Like we, we say, you know, let's take the power as a business owner, as a scientist at whatever level you're at. How did you actually get started and what is it that your business, you sort of have two sides to your business, don't you? Very much a research and a food production arm. Am I right in saying that? Yes, of course. We'll continue to have, a, you know, a res- our research and development activities for mm. decades to come as we as we look to different species of seaweeds to grow and different applications of those seaweeds and there's so many exciting and unique molecules in the seaweeds you know there's the the basic nutritional ones but there's even other exciting molecules that you just don't get in land plants and we're um, continually exploring those but you know for me and coming out from academia and then realizing that you know we've got I'm tired of writing papers about this and saying this is what should happen. It's um, I really stepped out of university a couple of years ago and said, all right, I've got to make it happen. And that was a, a challenging thing because then, you know, you're giving up a career focus, I guess, in a way, and, and um, you're not able to publish as much as you would have to in an academic sense. So you So you're sort of releasing yourself from that that career in a way but joining joining a new one and talking to investors and business people and trying to make it happen and that was really exciting but it also makes you face the decisions about okay we have to get to market with this seaweed and what are the important nutritional things that we can start addressing and you know the seaweed has 40% protein which is great but what are the deficiencies and the really important things in it and that in part is trace elements of course the you know you don't need to eat we need to eat vitamins and and trace elements sometimes or trace elements mostly if the land and soil are deficient in that and we're not able to get it through the plants but the ocean always has those trace elements present so the seaweed oh, that's fascinating yeah. Especially for us in Australia where we've got super low zinc soil. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Okay. The ocean receives all the nutrients back from the land eroding to sea and it will it will never run out of trace elements basically. So growing seaweeds in seawater will, will deliver you those trace elements, which is a great thing. But then the other exciting one was, was the dietary fibres. And, um, you know, many people are aware we might be deficient in trace elements and they're aware we're deficient in omega-3 and that we need to find those sources. Only really becoming aware, although we've heard of dietary fibre before, but we still are chronically deficient in dietary fibre. They estimate that we need about 30 to 40 grams a day, depending on who you are and the size you are, but um, we're really only getting half of that. And that's about feeding the gut flora. Again, it's an ecosystem here, but it's about feeding the gut flora and the gut flora in turn are processing and feeding you. Indeed, you've got more gut, you've got more bacterial microbial cells than you do human cells and if you're not feeding those and maintaining the right ecosystem of gut flora you're not maintaining your own personal health and that's that area of research is becoming huge and really exciting field of research but if you put seaweed into the mix it actually can provide a quick and efficient solution it's very hard to change the whole modern food production system but it's easier to inject things and improve um, more rapidly by adding something that addresses that deficiency. And that, that, that is seaweed and the dietary fibres. And we've had some really exciting results in that area. And that's, that's really for me when I, when I realised that, okay, we can get to market here very quickly and make a sustainable industry of via financial viability in, in the long term. Mm. And something I noticed at the um, BBC Futures event at the end of last year where I saw you speak with the lovely um, Dr. Mosley was at the lunch, there were some of the products that your company makes Mm. in the the spread. Unfortunately, I couldn't eat them because I'm very allergic to gluten. But what I loved about the concept was that it wasn't 100% seaweed pasta. It was, Mm. you know, I think uh, you could tell me what the percentage is actually. How much do you add in? It's only about 10% seaweed. That's the exciting thing with seaweed is that you don't need to have a whole plateful of it, which is what many people think. Oh, seaweed's great. Now I need to eat a whole bowl of seaweed. So human, isn't it? Like, oh, yay, let's just have everything. Oh, why don't I feel better? Actually, you've now overdosed in iodine. That's why you don't feel better. (laughs) Exactly. It's human nature, I think. But that's in a way why we sort of, we we figured, you know, people are into the sushi. They're getting that. But that's such an, a rare event type of food that people are eating. But we actually need to eat 
just a little bit of seaweed every day. Mm. And so how are we going to do that? And one of the main things that people eat is pasta. And, you know, you can make gluten-free pasta as well. We've done that if for people who, who have the, the gluten issues. But we also know that with the, you know, the good quality durum semolina that we use in this fettuccine pasta is a very good one. And so 10% seaweed into that adds trace elements. Mm. And in addition, it adds the dietary fiber equivalent dose of what we've shown in a, in a study to improve gut flora, even reduce inflammation in the system and cholesterol and insulin requirements as well. Mm. So in people that were deficient and, and, uh, and overweight. So, you know, just a little bit of these dietary fibers can make a big difference every day and, uh, uh, having pasta is is one easy way to do that. We also do muesli bars, and that was our our mission here is to make it easier for people to access and eat the seaweed without having every day to think about it and change their ways and necessarily learn how to cook with it, which is a great thing if you want to do that. That's wonderful, but we do have to think about improving things for mainstream here, and mainstream isn't out there exploring new culinary cooking experiences every day. So. No, you're absolutely right. And tell me, are you able to keep the costs to what a normal packet of pasta would be in a supermarket given seaweed is so inexpensive or does it? Is it the actual... I mean, you know, I'd imagine it actually... able to be competitive with, with, uh, with good quality pasta brands for sure. Mm. It's very hard to compete, you know, with the, with the cheaper mass-produced... Yeah, of course. Cheap, cheap products out there that may be quite nutritionally deficient. And I think as, as with any new industry, as these industries come into play and grow, they, you know, it's like solar panels. Yeah, they there'll be an good. economy of scale, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then now... You know, a lot of people have them. We're not as expensive as solar panels were in the beginning, <laughs> but we are in the upper spec, upper end of price in terms of pasta. And but as we scale and as the industry scales, that will become a mainstream. And it's just like any other crop, you know, farmed sustainably. You do lose some of the uh, economies of scale if you go from a very large scale, mass produced, you know, industry, but. Um, and increase the costs there a little bit, but pretty competitive with other good quality sources of food. Mm, I love it. And the other thing I loved about it was the the fact that someone isn't going to find that it tastes funny. So I got sent uh, something, you know, it was a bit of a paleo trend kind of product, I guess, that was a pastaless pasta of pure seaweed. And, ah, yes. you know, I thought, I'm I'm happy to give it a go. And I cooked up a really gorgeous ragu and, you know, served it. And we all just took a bite and went, that just tastes like I'm eating sea ragu. (laughs) It does does not taste right. It doesn't taste Western. And, you know, I mean, I love my Asian foods. I'm actually mad for seaweed in context of a gorgeous seaweed salad at a Japanese restaurant, you know, that kind of thing. But it just tasted so far from normal that it didn't make the meal taste right. And the, what I love about what you're doing is the recognition that it doesn't take a lot and you can incorporate it into things that people already love to um, to get those trace elements and the fibre up. You've got macadamias as well. I saw those on the website. I thought I've got to get those. Yeah, um, yeah. Delicious. we roasted our macadamias in the seaweed with a touch of wasabi, not too much, but just um, just enough. And uh, no, they're very tasty. Gorgeous. Now, something you talk about, uh, the Venus shell systems, rapidly growing unique seaweed biomass for various industries, so cosmetics, supplements. How do you grow it rapidly? Like is there is there, a, a you know, just in, in terms of people starting to understand that, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is when we hear rapidly growing wheat, we think, mm. oh, my gosh, it's been hybridised to within an inch of its life. It's not going to be digestible anymore. You know, there's a lot of knowledge around crops that have been tampered with to accelerate their growth and that th- their growth and not being necessarily um, good for us anymore. That mm. doesn't seem to be the case with seaweed though, right? Could you explain how you're able to do that? Mm. So um, one of the ways we, we, do, we actually grow our seaweed in swimming pools, if you like, just to isolate them and to capture carbon dioxide when we're growing it. So we capture carbon dioxide from um, ethanol ferment, so fermentation, so any 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 natural, you know, if you had a cow manure pile and it starts 
fermenting on the ground, it will create methane and you can burn that methane and turn it into a natural carbon dioxide or if you're a beer brewery and you're brewing yeast, your yeast are producing carbon dioxide. There's a lot of natural sources of carbon dioxide that are in the biosphere. Mm-hmm. Not not talking fossil fuel carbon dioxide here because if you you can capture that too, but it's also got a lot of other metal contaminants and things. But the carbon dioxide that naturally comes from our biosphere and industrial processes and you know beer brewing for example quite a lot of beer brewing around so we could actually put a seaweed farm next to a beer brewery I was just about to say are we going to start to see (laughs) breweries popping up on coastlines to work in conjunction with aquaculture that'd be hilarious but totally makes sense imagine if industries talk to each other this is our waste can you do anything with that waste in your industry oh yes great awesome let's work next to each other It'd be amazing. It's kind of like, you know, the modern medicine um, idea that we have these specialists that we go and see for literally one organ in the body and they don't talk to any other organ specialists sometimes about like what the other, you know, my holistic dentist always says, yes, you've got teeth, but those teeth are attached to a body and that's what I'm concerned about. Uh, You know, different specialists talking to different specialists is just like different industry talking to different industry. And it seems like, once again, it comes down to connectedness and curiosity and learning from each other and seeing how we can all benefit each other. Oh, yeah. No, one of my colleagues, he calls that the colliding cauldrons of knowledge. (laughs) Oh, I love that. How good is that? Colliding cauldrons of knowledge. I'm so writing that down. That's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's where where really exciting things happen. And you, you know that so many people know a lot about certain areas that would just make sense to you if you just sit down and have that cup of coffee and talk about it and the industries that can benefit and and research an industry as well starting to communicate better and and so that's what we've done so we're capturing carbon dioxide that's from a fermentation process and um, because so the rapid growing seaweed it's growing rapidly because Everything the seaweed wants on the plate is there all the time. You know, if you grow a crop and there's not enough, you know, nutrient in the soil or water or it's too much sun or not enough sun, that you don't get the optimum growth rates. And then, but if you add those things, you get much faster growth rates. So, and we're in addition to that, being able to concentrate the carbon dioxide into the seawater as we're pumping that in. So that's how we're getting the rapid growth rates is just through optimizing everything to to the maximum for the seaweed it's loving it so much it's growing fast so that's that's the um the speed of the growth and because they're not growing roots and shoots and other things like that because they're not like plants they're they're algae they're, mm. they're lots of cells stuck together but they're they're just getting all of their all the energies putting into the actual leaves if you like the leaves mm. are doing everything they're not real leaves but then it would be as if you're you know your um your banana tree was just growing bananas and that's all it could put its energy into. So so we could grow on a on an hectare of land equivalent, we could grow about a hundred tons of dried weight seaweed in a year. Wow. If you look at wheat, that would be about five tons. <gasps> Isn't that's that incredible? That's so very fast. Very fast and so sustainable. So no no uh, you know genetically modified seaweeds growing <laughs> rapidly. Yay! uh, Hooray! (laughs) Rapidly, absolutely. Oh, good. Now, what's the most exciting thing you're working on with your team right now? Is there is there something you guys have got bubbling away that you just can't wait to share with people, and you may give us an exclusive? (laughs) Oh, yeah. We we actually have a a number of sort of I'd call them our blue sky projects as well, because you know the pasta is for me a real game changer, and you know going to change things at the bottom of the food chain for people but also in the long term I'd love to scale and do more of the aquaculture feed industry but you know we have to be a lot bigger industry before we can tackle that we're sort of the salt and pepper on their aqua feed at the Mm. moment it's not enough of it being produced as yet but But some of the blues yeah Sorry, you let me know when you have when you start supplying uh, salmon farmers and you can vouch that they're doing the right thing by people and planet and fish, of course. Yeah. Um, you let me know because I would love oh. to let people know. Oh, we'll, we'll do that. We're doing a little bit with the abalone industry. We've actually put omega-3 back into abalone being fed our seaweed now because if they're fed land crops, they don't get the same omega-3 as they would from the ocean food sources. So that's exciting and, and we do maintain that smaller abalone industry link as one of our you know core aquaculture 
projects for the future. But some of our blue sky, I would call them, projects are related to the molecules that are very unique in the seaweeds. And uh, these are, you can imagine that seaweeds grow in salty water in the ocean Mm -hmm. and our human bodies are salty as well. So the connective tissue in the seaweed is connective tissue that has to survive and work in a osmotically challenging environment, saltiness, and the same in our bodies. So the connective tissues in seaweed and humans are quite similar. Oh. And so we're finding these very unique molecules now that could be used to replace some of the um, you know, biofabrication or artificial tissue engineering and things like that, wound healing, for example, printing new Oh, my God. People so that skin cells can repair faster by putting in the connective tissue ahead of the human being able to develop the connective tissue themselves. And that's really exciting because the the molecules from the seaweed are much more similar to human molecules than you'd even imagine. And at the moment, some of the sources that we have to get those types of molecules from, they can either be shut from sharks like shark cartilage, which is not necessarily sustainable, or from pig mucosa and cooking pig intestines to get those molecules. Then you have, you know, then you have issues with uh, religions that don't eat, eat pigs being able to access that technology. And so this is really a marine sea vegetarian solution to some of these connective tissue and regenerative medicine solutions. So I call them that our blue sky projects, but they're very real. And we're already able to show that we can have accelerated wound healing by applying our seaweed uh, molecules to, to human cells. Incredible. Oh, Pia, you guys are just amazing what you're working on. That is, it's such a wide breadth of, of solutions that can be had from the humble sea veggie. Yeah. 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 Now, uh, can I just ask, so I was with my son at the beach the other day down at Redleaf and we found a huge, great big piece of seaweed. He loves collecting things like that and bring them home. And we sort of asked ourselves, well, I wonder if we could chuck that in the dehydrator turn it into a powder and and sprinkle it on foods to add those trace elements that we've been talking about. Yeah. How do we, because we then tried to find out whether we could eat that seaweed, whether it was safe. Mm -hmm. How does one find out, you know, as a keen forager, whether you can just pick some up and and take it home and, and chow down? But generally speaking, seaweeds are, are quite safe. If you, so if you say you don't go picking mushrooms, we know that without knowing exactly what they are because they can be highly toxic. It's rare to have any seaweeds that have really high toxicity. There are some red seaweeds that might have be very high in bromine compounds and things that are a little bit less desirable to eat. So I'd avoid mostly eating you know, bright red seaweeds that if you're not familiar with them. There's some very good red seaweeds as well, but some that you're not familiar with, maybe not so. Uh, one red seaweed that is very common along our shorelines in the summer months is is nori. It looks a bit like a brownie, purpley sea lettuce, and it's actually a red seaweed, even though it's brownie, purpley colour. So we have our own Australian nori. So if you see a stretchy sea lettuce looking thing, you can actually take that home and dry it and use that. But But as I said, generally they're very safe. The one thing you have to think about is the environment they're growing in because, as Mm. I said, seaweeds take up all these trace elements. But if you're growing in an environment with arsenic or lead or industrial um, places around it, then seaweed will pick that up and you will have those those, uh, heavy metals in your seaweeds as well. So you need to be in a coastline and a catchment that's very clean. Yes. So if the water's murky, stay away? If the water's murky and if you're in an industrial area, you know, I wouldn't go eating seaweed in in Sydney Harbour, even though it's a lovely harbour. We do have industries around there and and things like that. So, you know, where we are on the south coast of New South Wales, we've got massive national parks in our catchments and so this coastal waters are very good. Yeah, so clean water is, is important. But the brown seaweeds can be very high in, in iodine. So we do need iodine. We're very deficient in it. But as you'd be aware, we only need trace amounts of it. Mm. So some people have overdosed on brown seaweeds, heavy in iodine, and this has affected them and their thyroid. So just dose mildly with, with the brown seaweeds. Yeah. But you can actually um, collect very fresh, um, healthy-looking ones from the beach 
and dry them and powder them and put them onto things. That's that's generally fine. Mm. You are allowed in different states. There's different rules about it as well. You're allowed to pick up 20 kilos of seaweed for personal use in New South Wales off the beaches. Oh, wow. Uh, most, mm, most people do that for compost. But you're not really allowed to go and harvest and, and pick lots of the wild seaweeds. Well, that would make sense, yeah. Thank you so much for this chat. I have learnt so much. I know everyone out there will have learnt so much. I'm mm. obviously going to link to the FICO Food Co range website right. because, you know, for anyone out there who wants to give the pasta a taste, try some macadamias, mm. I think it's absolutely worth it. I'm certainly going to be – I was writing out my questions thinking, oh, I've got to order those macadamias, and then, you know, two weeks went past and, and we're finally talking, I am motivated. I'm going to do that today. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and the, another gluten-free option is the FUCA, which our, it's our um, gold medal winning um, DUCA, which we call FUCA, mm. and um, it's, uh, it's a 10% seaweed, and you wouldn't know there's seaweed in it. It's, uh, you know, cumin and sesame seeds and um, oh, yum. things like that. You can just grill your vegetables or toss it through your rice salads or couscous salads or whatever, and um, it's an easy one to add seaweed into into your food with as well. Beautiful. Well, I know everybody out there will love supporting you and the work you do by chowing down on something from the range. It's just, as we were saying in the interview, if we can start supporting more people who give full traceability and can effectively demonstrate that they're doing good for people, planet and sea, then, you know, as if we wouldn't want to support that. So I wish you every bit of luck in your incredible endeavours, Pia, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much and thank you again for providing the forum for people to learn more and be educated about things, which is equally important. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for joining me for today's show. Check out the show notes at lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast. And if you wanted to maybe share a quote and something that really jumped out for you, you can find us on Instagram at lowtoxlife or simply hashtag lowtoxlife across social media. I absolutely love bringing you the show. Thank you for any of the star ratings or one-line reviews that you guys have left. It helps me know what you've been loving and what you'd love to see more of. I'll see you next week. Jack Rabbit FM for your ears. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.